Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, welcome into the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined today by Gabriel Gordon. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good, I'm good. Super thanks for being to be here. On the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you. We're trying something new today uh, for for folks. We're going to try a live stream. So this may or may not work, but we'll see how it goes. Um, but if you're listening to this after the fact podcasting, welcome one way or another. Um, Gabriel graduated with a double major in anthropology and cross can't say that cross-cultural ministry from Oklahoma Baptist University he's currently working on his master's of theological studies with a specialization in biblical studies from Portland Seminary he has authored two books and is featured in an edited volume of essays on Christian leadership in addition he is a confirmed member of the Orthodox Church part of the nope Episcopal sorry what did I say you said Orthodox oh my goodness no worries I just don't want to confuse people <laughs> Remember the Episcopal Church, I was skipping ahead there, uh, yeah. to the self-identified Anglo-Orthodox, and he's one of the co-founders of the Misfits Theology Club, a blog, podcast, and annual conference dedicated to providing a, a dialogue and working, a place of dialogue and working to build unity amongst diverse Christians. He currently lives in Grand Junction, Colorado with his wife, Hannah, and his dog, Carl, do you say Barth or Bart? Bart, it's a uh, Swiss. It's named, you know, the dogmatic reformer or reformed theologian from Switzerland. So Bart. Yeah, I know, but uh, see, I'm asking to be silly because, uh, you know, we might also say like Martin Luther shouldn't be Luther. It should be like, I don't know how you say it, right? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't know any German, so <laughs> I, I'm assuming we're probably all pronouncing it wrong. But I do know Karl Bart is. A lot of people, they see the H at the end of the name, and they think it's Barth, but it's actually, the H is silent. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, tell our listeners what else you'd like them to know about you. Yeah, so I'll just kind of give you a brief rundown of my life. Um, life is complicated, and, and, and one's faith is never quite separate from their life. So I like to just share, uh, a, you know, kind of the highlights or low or low lights um, of my life. So I'm originally from Washington State, um, but my grandparents were Assembly of God missionaries, which was the early denomination that I grew up in. And so when I was three, we ended up moving to Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, when I was, we were there for a couple years, you know, I think from ages three to five. I grew up without my father, and while we were in Bangkok, you know, these are some of my earliest memories, and I remember asking questions about the Bible and about Noah's flood, and I was always interested in Jesus and all of those types of things of faith. And uh, we ended up moving to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was exiled there for my crimes against humanity. Um, and so that's a joke. I hope I didn't offend all the Oklahomans. <laughs> so you're but, only like three, uh, right? Yeah, it, it, I was about five at that point. So exiled, you know, <clears throat> poor, cruel people sending us to Oklahoma. And so moved to uh, Oklahoma when I was about six my, for my mom to attend a, a Bible college. Um, while we were there, my grandfather, the missionary, left my grandmother for a Thai prostitute. And so my grandmother moved back to, or moved to Oklahoma. None of us are from Oklahoma. She moved to Oklahoma. And um, shortly after that, my mother got a boyfriend who sexually molested me. And my um, uh, mother started to physically abuse me. So I was taken away by the state and went to go live with my grandmother. She became my foster parent and eventually adopted me. Um, it was around this time, a little bit beforehand, that I um, first, um, I guess, committed my life to following Jesus. Mm -hmm. I remember, um, so I was, this would have been a little bit before the abuse, I think, but I was about six or seven and we were, uh, in a church service and, and the, uh, pastor's daughter, I think it was, um, got up and was talking about Jesus. And I thought to myself, I want Jesus. 
I need Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't exactly know what that meant. But from a young age, I've always been interested in, in Jesus as a person and as a friend. And so um, ended up for a number of years after um, the abuse, uh, be very angry at God. There was a small time during the third grade where I w- would have considered myself an atheist. Wow. Because I didn't believe, I, ne- I believed that God needed a uh, parent of some sort. If God, where did God come from, you know? And so, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that was based on my own anger and pain and hurt. At about the age of 13, my grandma lost her job at Albertsons. We'd been living in a trailer park in Broken Arrow, which is a suburb of Tulsa. So we ended up moving to government housing um, in Tulsa, which was very much so more the hood. um, And it was definitely not what I expected. And so we were there for a time. It was a really lonely year for me, actually. I got picked on a lot in the neighborhood and um, went to a really rough school. And during that time, I was in my room, and my grandmother was in the other her room, and I was trying to sleep, and I heard uh, an audible voice speak to me and say, Gabriel. And so I, at that point, I knew enough Bible stories that that sounded like the Samuel Eli story. So I told my grandmother, hey, I think God just spoke to me. What should I do? And she, of course, said, um, re- replied as Eli did, uh, you're, tell him your servant's listening. And uh, I did, and I fell asleep. Around that time, I also got baptized. So that's the first of kind of four experiences, I, I would say, that are kind of instrumental in, in informing me and in my faith and who I am today. Mm-hmm. The second one was uh, around the same time we were living in Tulsa. I was about 13 as well. I ended up going to get baptized. And I was walking up the baptistry, and uh, as I got to the top, someone came up behind me and shoved me in with both hands. The palm of their hands went into my back and pushed me in the water. So I got out of the water and I said, Grandma, what douchebag just pushed me into the water? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she said, nobody was standing behind you. Wow. Um, And then um, after being in Tulsa for about a year um, and after these two experiences, we ended up moving to South Dakota for a year to a town of 1,400 people. And while we were there, um, I kind I. I didn't really pursue my my faith in, in Jesus at that point. I um, kind of took a step back and uh, really tried to self-medicate. Um, I tried to chase girls unsuccessfully. Um, I got high, and that was fun, but it was definitely unfulfilling. Yeah. And when uh, we were there for a year, we ended up moving back to Bangkok for a year. Long story short, there was a lot in that, but while we were there... Uh, I ended. We ended up getting connected with a Southern Baptist church that was there. That we actually we knew the, a family that was from there, and this Indian family, um, we had known since the '80s. And so at this point, this is like 2008, 2009. And so it was there that the the youth pastor and 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 the pastor and his wife and 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 their kids really poured into me. Um, I started reading scripture really seriously for the first time in my life. I I was actually pretty heavy at that point. I was about 235 pounds. And um, I sat around watching South Park all day because um, yeah. I, I was supposed to be in school that year. Yeah. Um, but my grandfather uh, kind of went back on that promise of putting me in international school. So I just sat around and, and it didn't do much for the first part of that. Um, I also was tested. The, the, the pastors got someone to come test my reading level. I had a sixth grade reading level when I was supposed to be a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. And so this was uh, a pretty dark time in my life in some ways. I, I didn't expect to dra- graduate high school for a while. Hmm. and uh, uh, But like I said, the youth pastor, Mr. Dayton, really poured into me. and um, So I ended up exercising and trying to watch what I ate. I, he gave me history books, so I started reading those. Yeah. And um, we ended up moving back. And, and my faith was really renewed in a lot of ways, and I'm so thankful for them. And I we ended up moving back to Tulsa from Bangkok and got connected with another Southern Baptist church that was recommended to to us by them. And while we were there, I really grew a lot in my faith, um, ended up at the high school that I would have gone to if we would have never have left Tulsa. Um, and I, we actually ended up moving back to the exact same neighborhood that we had left Tulsa to kind of get out of. And uh, when, when we were there, uh, I was about to graduate high school, and I was asked. I'd been in prayer for a while, asking the Lord what God wanted me to do with my life, and I had this prophetic dream. And I like to think of uh, the Exodus count, and I think it's in chapter nineteen or twenty, where Moses approaches 
God on Mount Sinai and it's mm-hmm. all shrouded in darkness. So that's kind of how my dream was. Um, everything was kind of shrouded in darkness. Um, God the Father was on the throne. Um, I could kind of see the outline of God the Father in the throne, but but really everything was shrouded in deep darkness. And, and the Lord lifted up uh, God's hand and pointed to me and said, you are a prophet. So I woke up from this dream, uh, especially having been in a Southern Baptist church, and like, I don't know who to talk to about this. Yeah. Southern, my Pentecostal background would have been fine with that, but my Baptist background, that would have been a little bit off. So I told my grandma, she said, I believe you, I just don't know what to do with this. And so I kind of put that on hold for a while, but um, ended up going to college. I majored in anthropology, like you said, in bio, and um, ended up double majoring in cross-cultural ministry because I went to a trip, uh, a mission trip to Russia my freshman year of high school. And when I got, or sorry, of college, and when I got back, um, I, I was sitting on uh, the couch of my RA's room and had my head back because I was starting to fall asleep, and I felt oil poured on my forehead and run down the sides of my nose. And hmm. When that happened, I thought my my RA must be pulling a prank on me. There's someone in the hall must be pulling yeah, a prank yeah. on me. So like slap my forehead and feel around for the oil, and there's no oil. Um, and and back in um, ancient times in Israel, that's actually how they would anoint people. They'd pour right. it on the the head, and it would run down the sides of their nose into the beard. And and uh, so th- that's the that the dream and in that moment that anointing or kind of the four I I say formational moments in my faith. And so. Um, I kind of had this Pentecostal renewal because I was pretty Southern Baptist by the time I, I got to my Southern Baptist college. But having gone to Russia, some things happened there that I kind of had this reconnection with my Pentecostal roots. Mm-hmm. And um, as time continued on in college, I began to uh, go through uh, deconstruction of the theology I had been growing up on. Everything from a fundamentalist point of view was built on the Bible. And so that's everything uh, about the Bible was kind of the, the center of all my deconstruction and I ended up, long story short, um, not believing that uh, the Bible was the Word of God anymore um, and began to see that uh, the New Testament didn't proclaim that. That wasn't something that you could see, at least in the New Testament. Um, And uh, really came not out of just fundamentalism, but evangelicalism more broadly and even Protestantism. By the time I got out of college, I didn't really see myself in any of those uh, circles, but I, I did affirm the creeds. And I saw myself as uh, part of the broad historic Christian church, whatever that looked like at that moment. And after college, I ended up working at a summer camp in Colorado um, for about for, for the summer. And uh, one of the instrumental moments there that was also kind of pretty instrumental in the form of my faith is it was a fundamentalist camp. And so they had gone through the statement of faith the first couple of days and I couldn't affirm a couple of things on there. And uh the and basically i i had a decision i either needed to hide what i thought or i needed to tell them and get fired and i didn't really know what to do i'd ridden up to colorado from oklahoma with a friend i didn't have a car um and i broke so i was like i don't know what i'm gonna do you know this is what i i had plans to move to seattle in september but that you know that was five months away uh so i prayed and i i I felt like god spoke to me and said um if they want to get to you, they have to go through me. So I had this moment of pride swell up where, you know, yes, God is on my side. Hmm. Um, but then I uh, felt a cold or hot-handed slap to the face of a rebuke where God uh, spoke again and said, but they're also my children. Yeah. And if you want to get to them, you have to also go through me. Interesting. And so that was kind of a, a moment where um, uh, I, I think I was heading towards, and I was still headed in that direction well after, to, to being the type of person that was a jaded fundamentalist, yeah. a jaded former fundamentalist. Um, and, and really, you know, there's a great quote by Bonhoeffer I found not too long ago where he essentially says, um, those who are not willing to listen to God or to, to their brother will not hear God. Hmm. Um, and I think that was something that God was teaching me even back then. So stayed at the camp. Um, that's, I felt like that was what I was supposed to do. And so, and, after camp ended, I ended up moving to Seattle to uh, work at this church plant that was a Southern Baptist church plant in Seattle. Ended up getting kicked out six months into it. Uh, the pastor said I was unteachable and I pushed back too much. And <laughs> when I I ended up moving back to Oklahoma because that's where my now wife, then fiance, was. Mm-hmm. She was still in school. And so while we were there, I uh, got plugged into an Episcopal church because it seemed like they allowed weirdos in. And I was 
pretty and still I'm pretty much a weirdo. So I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good fit. And so, um, and one of the things that really uh, drew me in was all the doctrine that they required you to affirm when you became a member was the Apostles' Creed mm-hmm. um, as an individual. And there was a lot of a lot of room to disagree, and so that was appealing to me. And around this time, I also founded the Misfits Theology Club, um, and that's a whole other story. But um, to fast forward. Um, ended up becoming a confirmed member of the Episcopal Church. Um, so I'm like, I'm official, official yeah. bro. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have, as I've continued to read, I, I see myself more, I, I'm kind of a mit, a misfit. I'm kind of a mutt. Uh, I draw from lots of different branches of the Christian faith, from various parts of Protestantism, the Catholic tradition, and Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, uh, so in that sense, I, I would say I'm trans-denominational mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that I don't fit into one of those broad traditions. At the same time, though, I've come to really deeply identify as an Anglo-Orthodox, which is an Anglican or Episcopal, Episcopalian that um, identifies theologically, not as Protestant or Catholic, but as Eastern Orthodox. Oh, okay. And um, so um, I, I, I very much so identify as Eastern Orthodox. I'm also a house church guy, which um, that might strike some people as odd, kind of those two combinations. Um, um, I'm also a pacifist, which is kind of like the Anabaptist um, side of things. And I've never voted in my life, um, which is also kind of the Anabaptist strain. So, and that gets me stoned from both sides of the aisle. So, yeah, so, so that's, um, uh, I think that's a little bit, you know, that's kind of my life story summed up um, and uh, kind of, my faith and where it's at today so yeah i'm curious how does uh if i can ask how does your pentecostal background <clears throat> excuse me um what are the ways that you find that bumping up against perhaps melding with um your 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 spot now in the episcopal church yeah um so depending on who you ask uh i might be described as pentecostal or charismatic when i told uh my dean and my seminary this essentially life story i just told you um he said you sound like a pentecostal um with you know some of those experiences that happened in my life um so i think one of the there are a couple things that come immediately to mind on the one hand i i'm deeply shaped by that tradition i i have a robust um, appreciation for the Holy Spirit as one of the persons of the Trinity uh, and, and kind of the mystery that comes along with that and, and uh, I think it was the Celtic Christians that you know called the Holy Spirit the wild goose which I think is why a lot of Southern Baptists are really uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit because uh, it does unexpected things yeah. and you can't really pin it down and control it and, um, and so I think that has really shaped um, I'm open to those experiences and, and, and that sort of thing, I think, because of the Pentecostal background. I think where I rub up against it is Pentecostalism in America. This isn't true in all places. I know Romanian Pentecostalism, for instance, is, is, is not this at all. But in America, Pentecostalism tends to be very emotional, mm-hmm. emotionally driven. Yeah. Um, and uh, Southern Baptist is the opposite. It's, yeah. Emotions are bad. You know, don't have emotions. And so um, I have I, my Myers Briggs is an ENTP, so I'm not uh, I, I make decisions by thinking rather than my feelings, and so uh, raising my hands in service. Even back then, I was Pente- I was Episcopalian in the sense I you know I didn't like to raise my hands. <laughs> I like to have my hands at my side. Yeah. Um, part of the frozen chosen, and so uh, I think that's kind of where I rub up against my Pentecostal background is, you know, there's such an emotionalism there. And I, yeah. I, and just my personality, I'm inclined not to be emotional um, or, or I should say I'm inclined to suppress my emotions. I yeah, think is a better sure, way to put sure. it. So, so that's something I still struggle with of, you know, I don't want to be emotional um, and be controlled by those. Like a lot of people are in my Pentecostal roots, but at the same time, I want to very much so be open to uh, my emotions and, and processing processing through them so that's a immediately what comes to my mind yeah good good uh tell us any spiritual practices that maybe you've developed in this journey or that you might recommend others yeah i think um so i'll say i think that uh the background that i came from uh largely not entirely but and, you know dallas willard was southern baptist so nobody could say this about him uh but largely on a popular level in the Pentecostal and Southern Baptist worlds, uh, 
spiritual disciplines, and, and I actually don't like the term spiritual disciplines. I prefer Christian disciplines or uh, formational practices. But uh, those are kind of empty in those worlds. We besides prayer and just one kind of prayer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and scripture reading and just one kind of scripture reading, and uh, and and maybe being part of the Sunday gathering uh, with the church. Uh, but besides those, there's not really other ones that are emphasized, whether fasting or centering prayer or Lexio Divinia. So there's this whole host of um, Christian disciplines from, from the history, 2,000 years of church history that we have kind of ignored in some of those traditions. Um, and so one of the things that I have tried to do, and, and I've gotten a lot of this from my seminary that has a, a really big emphasis on Christian formational practices. Richard Foster, I think, is actually an alumni of my school. So okay. there's, there's kind of that... Um, that feel and vibe to it. So some of the practices that I've, uh, so for, for this morning, for instance, I, I did morning prayer. So in, in the Anglican tradition, we have the prayer book, you know, um, which is kind of the center of our worship and prayer practices. And so uh, we have morning prayer, evening prayer, uh, noon prayer, and I think Compline, which is like at the very end of the day. Uh, and so I sometimes will do morning prayer, which is, I did that this morning, um, which is just, you know, wrote written prayers, um, which include, you know, you say, you read a psalm, you, uh, there's some other prayers that are written there by Thomas Kramer, the guy that came up with the prayer book. Um, uh, you read the Apostles' Creed, uh, you read the Lord's Prayer, and, and again, some other prayers written by Thomas Kramer. And then, so after morning prayer this morning, I came home and I uh, read scripture. Mm-hmm. I read a psalm and I read four chapters of the gospel. Uh, and so that's kind of my goal is to read a psalm every day and to read um, from the gospels every day. And then uh, after that, I spent time in mindfulness meditation, which is typically known as a Buddhist practice, which they definitely do practice it in Buddhism. And, and yeah. I actually use Headspace, the Headspace app, which is great. Highly recommend it, um, which is uh, created and produced by a Buddhist uh I think, I think he would consider himself Buddhist. And so, uh, although I think that mindfulness has a deep tradition in uh, the Christian faith as well, if you read, Amy Oden has a book called Right Here, Right Now, and she talks about mindfulness in the Christian tradition. Great book. It's super short. She's a United Methodist professor down in Oklahoma City. Um, and so, yeah, I did mindfulness meditation for 15 minutes, and then I did centering prayer. So in mindfulness, um, for those who are familiar, you know, you focus on, um, some aspect in your body. So uh, most of the time, for instance, I'll focus on my breathing, and you're it's, it's, you're practicing being aware in the present moment. Um, whereas centering prayer is a little bit different. You have a word that you choose. So I choose my word is logos, um, the Greek word for word, and um, that basically you're supposed to do the opposite. You're not supposed to focus on anything. You're supposed to just empty your mind and let it be blank. It's a form of apophatic um, or, or prayer where you just everything's blank and so the word that you choose isn't to focus on it's to actually um when when thoughts do arise it's actually to gently push those away and come back to nothing um so it's a form of silence uh and, and solitude and so those are are generally the um i have in the past um tried to do some other ignatian prayer practices like lectio divinia and journaling but um it's all, honestly, all these, uh, because I'm an ENTP um, and not a, a J, I'm not very organized, I'm not very disciplined. So these actually are very unnatural to me, um, but I try to implement it in my life to just help um, ground my day and kind of um, help form me as a follower of Jesus. So, Well, that's great. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is a little scratchy today. Let's talk a <clears throat> no little worries. bit about, uh, Gabriel has a book uh, coming out. Do, do you have a release date for this yet, by the way? So it was supposed to be early June. Um, at this point, I don't think that's going to happen. I just were, I just got the cover options from my publisher as of last night, and I sent back which one I preferred. So we're finishing up with the cover. I think the interior do- design is almost done, so it should be sent off to the publisher soon. So maybe mid to late June. Okay. So, well, we're recording this in May, so it'll probably be available uh, by the time folks are listening for it. But the book is called God Speaks, and sounds like Gabriel's still working on the subtitle, right? Yeah, the, the original subtitle was uh, essentially canonic 
participatory incarnational uh, theology of inspiration and revelation or something like that. But that's just too too long. So yeah, there's a we'll lot see. there. There's a lot there. Well, let's try to talk a little bit about what is there. Um, tell our listeners kind of about the goal or the purpose of the book. Yeah, so kind of what when I've been asked this question, I, my, my first and, and simplest answer is that the book is written to put stumbling blocks between people and biblical idolatry. I am trying to make biblical idolatry absolutely impossible. Um, I don't think I will have done that with this book, but I hope that I've contributed to that. So that's one aspect um, of, of why I wrote this book, of its purpose, is, is to prevent biblical idolatry and I think we'll get into what that is and how I define that later another thing that uh, um, I was thinking of when I was thinking through these questions earlier there's a scripture that came to mind Matthew 13 52 um, and I'll just read it here and he said to them therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old and that's really I think sums up in, in a lot of ways what I'm trying to do in the book um, I uh, am a firm believer that um, a lot of what ails us today is our modern versions of Christianity. And so I want to, to mm-hmm. encourage and push us back to go back to the, uh, ultimately back to Jesus, but also back to the early church, the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. And uh, so that's what I'm trying to do. I also engage um, contemporary theologies, yeah. which, so in that sense, I'm engaging both old and new, although I think, and I try to do a good job of showing this that the, these contemporary theologies actually have seeds or precedents they they've been developed from things that you can find earlier in the Christian faith so cool um i'm curious you know define for me and for our listeners i think you've told me this before offline but tell our listeners what you mean by biblical idolatry yeah so um there's kind of a simple way i'd like to talk about it so i'm a, i'm a trinitarian and when I think of biblical idolatry, I, I think about how it was in, put into practice in, in both my Pentecostal and Southern Baptist roots. So in the Pentecostal world, um, we love the Holy Spirit, right? We love the Holy Spirit. So mm-hmm. it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But uh, in, fundam- in Pentecostal circles that have kind of taken on a fundamentalist flavor, they add uh, the Bible to that. So it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Holy Bible. So it kind of becomes a fourth member of the Trinity. In the Southern Baptist world, um, we're very uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit. So it becomes Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Um, And so the way I would define biblical idolatry is anything that either places the Bible on par with God as equal in authority and equal in essence to God or um, in this, you know, in that that can be done, you know, in multiple ways. It can be done by taking out the Holy Spirit and replacing the Holy Spirit with the Bible, or it can be done by adding the Holy Spirit alongside the, the rest so, of uh, the Godhead. So the question I have to ask is, and again, I'm thinking as a as a former Baptist is, and I think we'll get into this and you'll explain this, but the question I have to ask then is folks would would say, you know, I, what do you mean I'm, I'm equating the Bible with God? Like, they would say the Bible is the inspired, it's God's breathed words. Literally what folks mean when they talk about the Bible being inspired. So uh, talk through that a little bit if you could. Yeah, so um, I think it can be summed up really well. Um, there's a Southern Baptist author, and I, I'm not you know, pointing him out to make fun of him or to, you know, hey, look at what bad he's doing. But sure, I think he, sure. he represents well. Um, he teach, His name is uh, Matthew Barrett. Um, he wrote this book, God's Word Alone. And he teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. So he says, it is clear that for, and this is on page 243 at the bottom, it is clear that for Jesus, God and scripture can be spoken of synonymously. Demonstrating that scripture is the very word of God, we should not attempt to drive a wedge between the two. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of other statements like that you can find in, in fundamentalist writings. Um that essentially say that God and Scripture are synonymous. So um, some of this, I think, comes down to... um, So Martin Luther, for instance. So this is not a Protestant phenomenon, so to speak. Um, Martin Luther didn't believe, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit later, but Martin Luther didn't believe, according to 
Justo Gonzalez, a historical theologian, that the Bible was the word of God. He believed Jesus was the word of God. Yeah. Karl Barth, um, the the guy that my dog's named after, <laughs> yeah. um, was a 20th century reformed Calvinist um, a theologian in Switzerland, and he did not believe the Bible's word of God. He believed Jesus was. Uh, and he's a Protestant. Um, yeah. And, and I would say an evangelical Protestant at that. And then, um, yeah. so, it's, go ahead. Uh, flesh this out a little bit for our listeners. This delineation between the Bible and the Word of God. Because, again, many people would listen and say, they're one and the same. What do you mean? What do you mean by separating the two? Yeah. Okay. So that, that yeah, that's a foundational place to start. And and I'll say quickly say this: some of the problems in in my view when we, we when we have conversations about dis, different uh, contradicting theologies, whether it's like Calvinism and Arminianism or whatever it is, um, if I have a conversation with a Calvinist, it's not just our interpretation of the Bible that it's at issue. And if we just remain there, we're not going to actually we're just going to talk past one another. Yeah. But a lot of the conversations actually have to do with what do we view the Bible? Mm-hmm. How do we view the Bible? What is it? And so we have to talk about inspiration. We have to talk about the Word of God, and we have to talk about the Bible and how those are related. Yeah. So, um, so I would say, and I, I make this case in the book, is that if you go back to the New Testament, if you go back to, and we'll get into inspiration here in a second, but if you go back to the New Testament, um, and you go back to the early church, second, third, fourth century, and you read their writings. They do not call the Bible the Word of God. It's always Jesus is the Word of God. So, for instance, First John, um, and I have an appendix in the back of the book. Um, if it ends up not being in the back of the book, it'll be online, available, mm-hmm. um, that goes through every use of the word Word of God in the New Testament. So you can go check this wow. um, after you listen to this podcast and buy the book. Yeah, um, yeah. But they don't, when, when, it, when John 1 reads, you know, in the beginning was the Word of God and the Word was God and the Word was with God, mm-hmm. um, that's clearly talking about Jesus, um, right. Hebrews 4.12, um, which often, you know, the, the, the Word of God is like a sword of the Spirit dividing joint and bone and marrow. Um, that often gets uh, uh, interpreted to be the Word of God, that, or sorry, to be the Bible, that, oh, Hebrews 4.12 is about the Bible. But um, uh, one commentator mentioned that... Um, until the Reformation, that verse was clearly understood to be about Jesus. And, and on the Incarnation, written by Athanasius in the 4th century, he, uh, um, he when referencing Hebrews 4.12, and I talk about this book, but in the book, when he references Hebrews 4.12, he offhandedly, um, because it was just assumed, he just offhandedly says, and this is re- referring to the Son of God, yeah. to Jesus. Um, so if you go back... Um, and again, I, I go through lots of examples in the book, but if you go back through the New Testament, if you go back through the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, when they refer to the Bible, it's not, it's it's called the divine scriptures, it's called inspired scriptures, it's called the scriptures, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's never referred to this by, as the Bible. It, it, it maybe, maybe very, very rarely, but overall it is not referred to as the Bible. Um, and so, and, th- and this is the case as well, like I said, in Martin Luther and Karl Barth and C.S. Lewis. All of them have this view that the Bible is not the word of God, but Jesus is. The Eastern Orthodox tradition has continued to hold on to this belief. If you ask the Eastern Orthodox, what do they believe is the word of God? They're not going to point to the Bible. They're going to point to Jesus. And so there's these huge swaths of the Christian tradition that do not understand the Bible to be the word of God. They understand Jesus too. So that brings us to, well, I thought 2 Timothy 3.16 was clearly saying that the Bible is the word of God. Right, right. So, So that... It comes down to, okay, well, what is Second Timothy 3.16 saying? And in the book, I talk about the difficulty of, of interpreting Second uh, Timothy 3.16 because the word God breathed or God inspired, depending on how it translated, that Greek word, uh, as far as we know, is invented by the author of Second Timothy. Before Second Timothy was written, it, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's not a bad thing. You know, I, I think as moderns, we think, oh, words are just there. They just right. exist. So if you make up a word, then, oh, that's bad. You're naughty. But but words are all made up by human beings, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so getting past that. Uh, so normally how a biblical scholar will try to find me, what does this word mean? is they'll look at whatever the text is. So if it's 2 Timothy, they're going to say, is this word used anywhere else in the letter of 2 Timothy? Mm-hmm. Um, they're also going to look in the rest of the New Testament. Is this used anywhere else in the New Testament? How is it used? Because it's by its use 
that we determine what it means. That's how words gain their meaning is by how they're used in a sentence, paragraph, and so forth. And, and so they're also going to, besides the letter and besides the New Testament, they're also going to look, where is this word used in the Jewish world? Yeah. And where is this letter used in the literary context of the Greco-Roman world? Right. So, but for us, it's not in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. It's not in the Jewish world of the first century. And it's not in the rest of the New Testament because it's a new word coined by the author of Second Timothy. So to, to say... What is to ask the question? What is this word? We have very little to go on in the first century. So the first time that we really see this used, uh, this word, I, I think it might get used uh, in the late first century by Clement uh, of Rome. But but for, for the most part, the first time this is actually begins to be used outside of the New Testament, outside of Second Timothy, is in the second, third, and fourth century by the first Christians. And so they're our best bet in a lot of ways for going back. And, and understanding how are they using this word. And, and the way they used it is um, they used it to refer not just to scripture and not just to the Protestant scriptures. Mm -hmm. they, they used it to refer to what Catholics consider scripture, yeah. uh, what Protestants call Apocrypha. They right. used it to refer to um, second, second, or First Clement, um, his letter to the Corinthians, uh, written probably around 90, 95, 100, something like that. Um, he refers to his own writing as inspired. Uh, they, they used to refer to creeds, to bishops, to councils, to anchorites, all sorts of things. So that's a really broad use of inspiration. So if we're going to say that inspiration means God's word, then we have to, then we kind of have to look at, okay, what are they calling inspired? And does it make sense for that to be synonymous with God's word? Are bishops and creeds hmm. and uh, other scriptures outside of the Protestant canon and, and anchorites and, all, and, and, and bishops, are all these uh, God's word? Would it make sense for the, for that to be synonymous, right? Yeah, it's definitely a broader conversation <clears throat> for sure. Yeah, and so so then we have to so so from its immediate use in the following century, it seems like it's not synonymous with God's word, whatever it is. So so we need to go back to Second Timothy, and the and the great thing about uh, a lot of the biblical writers, especially in the, also in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're always referring back to other parts of, of the scriptures. <clears throat> and so 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired, seems to be, I think, a reference to the creation of Adam in Genesis, uh, what is that, 2. And so there, but okay. here's the thing we need to understand. In Genesis 2, there are two acts to the creation of man. It's not one act, there are two acts. The first act is that Adam, God uh, takes up the dust uh -huh. And forms Adam or creates Adam out of the dust. Um, and the second act is that God breathes God's life mm -hmm. into Adam and create, uh, hence creating a living being. So Genesis, or sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16 doesn't say um, that God, uh, all scripture is God formed or God created. That first part of the creation of Adam, it says it's God breathed, which is the second part. And so Genesis where it's the second part where it says God breathes God's life into Adam creating a living being. Well, who do we know to be the life of God? And John, it says, Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the life of God. So hold that. So God breathes God's life into, uh, into uh, Adam or into the scriptures as in 2 Timothy 16. So there's a, one, more ver or one more chapter I want to address that I think we need to look at to understand 2 Timothy 3.16. So in Matthew, on the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew chapter 5.17, I think there's a couple of ways. Jesus says, you know, I've not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. Uh, a few verses later, he ends up contradicting, or seemingly contradicting himself, saying, you know, um, you have heard eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you to do something different. That, mm -hmm. he's, that's a, a passage from the Torah, and he's contradicting it so you have to ask exactly what's going on there and I, I deal with that in a couple different ways but one of the things I think we need to understand about that passage and understand 2 Timothy 3.16 in light of is that um, all script or I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them the Greek word behind fulfill is the word for is the word palero, okay. which can also be translated as to make full of or to fill yeah. So it in 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 this we have precedence for understanding it as to fill rather than to fulfill in origin. 
So Origin, and here's a picture of Origin for people that are watching. He has an amazing beard, so you know you can trust him. Yeah, if you're listening um, to this, and, just look up Origin, <laughs> Google Origin images. <laughs> He's got this amazing beard. Actually, you can't see it, but on the back of my laptop, I have a picture of Origin, that same picture. So, nice. Um, I actually have a T-shirt, too. Um, big fan. And so, uh, anyway, so Origin, we have precedence for understanding this playro word in Matthew 5, 17. It's to fill. Uh-huh. So... In his commentary on Matthew, he talks about that he uses this metaphor of scripture as a net. So he says scripture was a net, like a fishing net, and before Christ came, he had yet to fill the net. And then following this, he cites Matthew 5.17. Yeah. So Origen, in his commentary on Matthew, seems to understand this word palero used in 5.17 uh, as to fill rather than to fulfill. So then, we, if that's the case... Then it would read something like, uh, I've not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fill them. So, so, so think about this fill language. And now go back to Genesis, the second part. God breathes God's life, who is Christ, into Adam creating a living being. And so in 2 uh, Timothy 3.16, um, God breathes God's life into the scriptures, with this, which is Christ. Christ has come not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fill them. Mm-hmm. And so this is what or this sums up Origins theology, and it sums up, I think, the theology that I'm espousing in the book is that Christ come is filled into the scriptures in a sacramental or incarnational sense. Mm. So it's like uh, the 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 analogy I like to use is a jelly donut. Yeah. So scripture is the donut, and Jesus is the jelly filling that's squeezed into it. <laughs> and so Jesus Love is the, the jelly and the jelly donut. And so uh, and, and this is how Origin kind of describes. Um, the Jesus as the inside of scripture is the spiritual sense of scripture. So this is why you don't, in the early church, you just didn't read scripture literally. There was a literal level, but you weren't supposed to stay there. You're supposed to go to the spiritual level underneath. So Christ, as Origen talks about, is the flesh um, of, uh, sorry, the scripture, he talks about it kind of in an analogous sense to the incarnation. The the literal level of scripture is the flesh of, of, of the word who is Jesus and Jesus is the spiritual sense the divinity inside of scripture the, the palero the jelly filled donut mm-hmm. he is the filling inside of scripture uh, and so in that sense I think that gives us a better understanding of what inspiration means again we have to go to the church fathers how did they use it they used it much more broadly I think we need to understand it in light of Genesis the second part of the creation of Adam uh, understanding that Jesus is the life that's breathed into Adam brings him to life He's the life that is breathed into Scripture, bringing it into into to life, and and and, and that is uh, understood also in, in light of Matthew five seventeen that Jesus paleros he comes to fill the Scriptures as a jelly donut. So, hmm, the jelly donut that's helpful. It's a silly metaphor, but it's helpful. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of questions more I want to ask you about this, but for the sake of time, uh, yeah. I need to kind of wrap it up. Plus, we need to give our listeners something some incentive to want to buy the book right to to get the yeah, rest of the story um let me ask yeah. this kind of one thing we talked about uh before recording and kind of i think is a is a sub theme surrounding this entire conversation is the idea of of deconstruction you kind of mentioned it in your own story kind of your own deconstruction yeah. process and one of the things i know we've talked about and something that's been important to me is this idea that you know, so many folks like to deconstruct, but don't give folks anything to re- reconstruct. And you had a nice saying, I don't remember, give your story that you said to me offline. Yeah, I'm going to try to remember. Um, I have ADHD and we have uh, in, uh, notoriously short memories. Um, <clears throat> Something about so, professor, I think, right? Yes. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Okay, so I'm glad you, you said that. So my professor, Dr. Carlton, blessed be his name. <laughs> um he uh, was a missionary over in Asia, Cambodia, Hong Kong, India for 20 plus years. Mm. He um, he went to Cambodia when uh, Cal I think when Cal Pot was reigning, when it was not a safe time to be in Cambodia, mm. and he um, didn't have to, but he felt like God called him to do that. So he's the real deal, um, and he, so he was with me a lot through 
through this deconstruction period of my life. And I remember him saying, I think this was after I graduated, but I lived on campus for a year after I graduated um, once I moved back from Seattle because we lived in marriage housing. My wife was still going to school. But I I remember having this conversation with him and he said, Gabe, you just can't take stuff away from people. You have to to give them something in return. Um, And I think that whether we like to admit it or not, when we deconstruct, we do take something in return. It, it's like a vacuum, you know, it, you know, you suck air out of the room and air immediately sucks back into the room. You, you can't just be empty handed. You will always have something in your hands in that sense. So, so as somebody like in this book, I, I, I there is a bit of deconstructing kind of the fundamentalist worldview. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not trying to just take something away. I'm, I'm very much so. This is a constructive project. I'm trying to give um, something to you. So I, I take away that the Bible is the word, and I give you Jesus as the word. So. Yeah, that's this is kind of like my favorite thing about the book is that, you know, like like I just said, like so, and you just said so much of deconstruction, uh, and and folks who kind of encourage deconstruction, at least in my opinion, really do in a way that they just take without giving anything. And that's what I appreciate. I, I know for, for some folks, this, this, you know, the concept of your book might be new or strange for some, you know, there's some folks who are like, Hey, this is, this is old hat. Uh, but I think it's important just generally speaking to give people some, um, you know, not the, not, we're not, I'm not saying force it on them, provide them other stepping stones or, uh, paths to explore. And I think that's really helpful. So, um, let's take a break. And we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Gabriel Gordon. And uh, Gabriel, I always tell folks you can take these questions as seriously or not as you like to. So if you're Pope for day, and, uh, you know, that's interpret that word Pope. I try to let even give some leverage there, uh, leeway yeah. there. What does that mean to you? What, is that, what does that day look like? What do you want to do? Well, so I thought about this question uh, beforehand, and... You know, my initial thoughts were, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some really good things, but the only way I thought that that would be accomplished is if I single-handedly, in a coercive fashion, made decisions, um, kind of in a hierarchical fashion. So I thought that that would actually go against everything I believe about <laughs> the nature of God, and so I, my, I think my answer uh, that I thought through is uh, I'd give up being pope. All right, all right, I like it, I like it. Um... I think we might know the answer to this based on <laughs> some of your previous answers, but a theological or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Yeah, um, I think Origen, um, he's just such a fascinating figure. He's got such an awesome beard. So if I could get some great beard tips um, mm-hmm. how to how to make such a luscious mane, that would be great. Uh, but I think he would have a really... Uh, he would give a lot of good insight into um, in the church today and kind of my own work. I also, um, you know, I think it's J.B. Phillips, I think. Uh, I think he was an Anglican in the 20th century Bible scholar. Uh-huh. He apparently had, I read about recently, he apparently had this experience where a few couple days after C.S. Lewis died, C.S. Lewis um, purportedly appeared to him and had a conversation with him. And... Um, so, I don't know exactly what to make out, uh, but that kind of makes me want C.S. Lewis to come back and be able to have a conversation with him. I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan as well. Sure, so. sure, sure. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Oh, man. Um, I'm starting to write a book on, um, it's called The Fundamentals of a Recovering Fundamentalist, A Journey of Reconstruction. Yeah, And yeah. I think that, and part of the reason for wanting to write this book is I think that people, like we've talked about, people are doing deconstruction really badly. Right. And, right. uh, well, that could be a podcast so, right there. It's right there. And, uh, so, and one of the things I talk about in the introduction is that people, former fundamentalists that are in this deconstruction movement that are going through deconstruction out of fundamentalism have an amazing opportunity at this moment in history to, to create a future um, that is amazing. Um, I think it's, um, what's her name? The, the one that says there's a huge historical change every 500 years. Oh yeah. Um, tickle, Phyllis tickle. Phyllis tickle says that every 500 years is a major shift. So like the last 500 years was the Protestant reformation before that was scholasticism before that was the monastic movement. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of due for this, um, this major shift. So I think I sense it happening, whatever's happening, 
Um, I, it, it's almost like, you know, you walk into a room and there's this two people and it's a really awkward situation. You can almost cut the awkwardness with a butter. You can feel it. <laughs> it's kind of like that. I feel something has changed. Something is happening. Um, and I think that the deconstruction scene is, is very much so a part of that. But I think we could either help to create something very amazing yeah. or very terrible. Um, if we don't change course quickly and start doing it well. And I think that uh, depending on what decision we make in that, that's what history will remember about this time and place is those were the people that really turned the course for the better or those were the people that really turned the course for the worse. So, Well, I'm excited to check out that new book. Um, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Um, yeah, I mean... At the end of the day, I hope we're more like Jesus. Um, That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I hope we're more like Jesus. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, so I'm just starting a podcast with a friend who is an Eastern Orthodox deacon who recently became Episcopalian, and uh, mm. it's an Anglo-Orthodox podcast, so we're talking about bringing uh, Eastern Orthodoxy into the West, and Anglicanism, and... Uh, I wanted to name the podcast. I don't think this is going to be the name, but I wanted to name it the Sunrises in the East, hmm. um, giving kind of the impression that uh, we we have so much to gain here in the West from from learning from our Eastern brothers yeah. and sisters. And um, <clears throat> so I, my hopes for the future is that, uh, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you know, those who do not listen to their brother do not listen to God. I would hope that the, the church as a whole, Protestant, Catholic, and, and, and Eastern Orthodox, would begin to listen to one another yeah. and uh, actually befriend one another. And I hope that the church um, can learn from the Eastern tradition because I think, you know, as Bishop Callistos Ware says, uh, an Eastern Orthodox bishop, he says, you know, the Protestants and Catholics, they ask the same questions, they just give different answers. Yeah. In the Eastern Orthodox church, they give different answers. And I think for the future of different Christianity in the West. You mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, sorry, different questions. They ask different, thank you. They ask different questions. And so I think for the hope, uh, for the future of Christianity, uh, particularly in the West, <clears throat> um, I think we need to start asking different questions. And I think the East can provide that for us. Um, yeah, so. I mean, just by and large, it would do Western, <clears throat> Western, uh, what's the word I'm thinking? Westernism? That's not the word. Um <laughs> Western society, some good, yeah. just to open our eyes maybe to the East wouldn't be the yeah. worst thing in the world. Well, where can people find out more about you? Um, so you can find me on Facebook. You can just Google my name, Gabriel Gordon, or not Google my name, uh, Facebook my name, Gabriel Gordon. You should be able to find me on there. Uh, you can also find me at the Misfits Theology uh, podcast and blog. So misfitstheology.com I think is the, the website. Um, we're also going to be putting on an annual conference. I think the dates, it's kind of tentative depending on COVID, but I think we're shooting for October 22nd, 23rd. That'll be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, wow. Um, so you could find me there. Uh, and I don't really, I have a Twitter, don't really get on Twitter. So the best place is um, probably uh, Facebook or the website. Um, those are ways to contact me. So. All right. Well, very good. Uh, Gabriel, thanks for your time and may God's peace be with you. Yeah. Thank you, Lauren. Bless you, man. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again and go in peace.